Hi, and welcome to Rocky River United Methodist Podcast, and um, we're really happy um, for you joining us and listening to this. And as always, we just hope that these podcasts have been a benefit for you and your faith and your faith walk. And um, we're going to be continuing our series about animals in the Bible. So um, it's just been a really fun series. I've been really enjoying doing the research for this series, um, learning things about animals um, referenced in scripture and where they're found in scripture and just learning about the animals in general has just been kind of fun. So I hope that this podcast is just giving you a little bit of insight into something that you may uh, may not have always thought about, um, the animals that appear in scripture. So hopefully this can um, also just help get a better understanding of scripture and more fuller and complete picture. Um, so Paul is going to start us off with his Uh, One of his favorite animals, I believe. So, um, Paul, you want to start us off? One of my favorite animals. Well, I'll have to do some quick (laughs) research because I certainly didn't bring any of my favorites with me today. Um, In fact, I don't think I've ever encountered anybody whose uh, favorite animal is the one I'm about to share about, which is kind of sad. But maybe that's also the point, which we'll uh, discover as we dig into it. Uh, The first animal, Stephen, we're going to talk about. Um, is a donkey a donkey so you know believe it or not donkeys are actually mentioned 120 times in the Bible 120 times in the Bible I I didn't look uh, to see whether that was the most of of any other animal but um, uh, Stevens shaking his head (laughs) no he must have some information to that to that end uh, for us eventually but 120 times in the Bible and, and of course uh it's not necessarily because they're uh, extravagant, uh, uh, exciting, engaging creatures, uh, but because they're practical. They were very important creatures to people that lived during Bible times. Uh, they were often used as uh, beasts of, of burden, uh, is the phrase for things like plowing uh, and other um, uh, heavy labor tasks. Or, of course, they, they could be ridden, um, just like a, a horse uh, or a mule or, or any other riding animal. Uh, So there are two main stories that I want to use to help us focus on donkeys today. And the first is probably, at least I would argue, the the most bizarre animal-related story in all of Scripture. In fact, uh, it might be the most bizarre story in all of Scripture. And uh, this may come as a surprise to some, but Shrek is is not the only story ever (laughs) written with a talking donkey in it. Uh, So... Um, hang on to your seats here because it's going to get interesting. We're, we're in Numbers chapter 22, and I'll take a few minutes to set the context here. Uh, in fact, just uh, bringing you up to speed with where we're at in this story and telling it is going to take a good chunk of our time. Uh, the Israelites have escaped slavery in Egypt, and they're trying to make their way through the wilderness to the promised land. And along the way, uh, God had already granted Israel victory over several great armies uh, of their, their enemies that stood in their way. The next army that the Israelites were expected to encounter was that of the Moabites as they moved on uh, towards their land. Uh, Balak, king of Moab, though, uh, had heard about what had happened with previous armies and and battles the Israelites were in, and he was not about to let his army get destroyed by uh, these invaders uh, from a foreign land. But instead of trying to confront the Israelites with his military might, because others army, other armies had tried that and failed, uh, he goes a different route. He invites Balaam, a man named Balaam, a local prophet, 
to come and put uh, what he expects to be some sort of a magical curse on the Israelites and uh, to defeat them that way. And he promises that he's going to pay Balaam handsomely for doing this and, and for basically saving all the Moabites. Little did Balak know uh, that Balaam actually was already a follower of the God of Israel. So, uh, so Balak doesn't know that, but Balaam already worships Yahweh, and he's not going to curse the people uh, of Yahweh, the people of the God he worships, um, no matter how much uh, Balak wants to pay him or uh, wants him to do so. And uh, this, is where, this is where things get confusing. And so we have to, to resort to speculation and trying to connect some dots, but there's not a whole lot of certainty. Balaam uh, decides that he is going to still go and meet up with, with Balak, like Balak requested. God, in fact, tells him to do this, and he's going to do exactly what God told him to do also. He's going to go and meet with Balak, but he's going to do so kind of on, on the uh, down low. He's going to do so secretly on God's side instead of on uh, Balak's side. And um, he's going to go meet up with them and, and see what God tells him to do when that time comes. So Balaam is on, on his way to meet with Balak. And all of a sudden, this angel of the Lord, uh, a ways down in his journey, an angel of the Lord appears in the middle of the road right in front of him. Uh, a product, we're told at this point in the passage, of, of God's anger. God's angry about something, so he sends this, ang this angel to plop right down in the road in front of of uh, Balaam. So why is God angry with Balaam? That's the, the big question. So once again, all we can do is kind of guess at this and, and uh, connect some dots. One strong theory, though, is that God was reading Balaam's thoughts uh, in the midst of this journey, and he knew, God knew, uh, what nobody else did other than Balaam himself, that, that Balaam spent this entire journey uh, picturing all the things maybe he could do if he were, in fact, to do what Balak, King Balak, asked him to do, and he were, in fact, to get all this money. Maybe, maybe Balaam, on the journey, had decided that he was going to disobey God, and instead he was going to allow the king of Moab to, to pay him these buckets of gold and silver to join his side instead. Uh, so this is just one theory, uh, but really we're left to scratch our heads as to, to why this angel appears and why God is angry. But whatever the case, this, this angel with sword in hand shows right up, uh, shows up right in front of Balaam on the road. And if he continues forward, he and his donkey, who he is riding, will certainly be killed. And then we have this, this little wrinkle in the story. You see, uh, we find out quickly Balaam cannot see the angel. But his donkey can. So the donkey refuses to move forward. He doesn't want to get chopped to bits by this uh, sword-wielding angel. Uh, Balaam doesn't know this, though. Balaam doesn't see the angel, so he starts beating on his donkey over and over. In fact, he beats him three times, thinking his donkey is just being stubborn. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the donkey, out of nowhere, in response to these three beatings, is given a voice uh, by God, the Lord opens his mouth and the donkey says to his owner, what have I done to you? I, I wish I could do this in a donkey's voice, but I've never heard one. I'm not a huge Shrek fan. Uh, but in a donkey's voice, imagine, what have I done to you, Balaam, to make you beat me these three times? So the conversation continues actually for a few minutes, if you can imagine this. Donkey and owner just chatting it up until God finally opens Balaam's eyes also to see this this sword-wielding angel right in front of him. So Balaam quickly starts realizing what's going on here, 
And, uh, and we presume that uh, because he had begun to stray in his thoughts away from God and, and uh, tempted to, to uh, betray God, he pledges his allegiance back to God here at this point, and uh, everybody goes home happy. So uh, the question is, with such a bizarre story, what do we take from all of this? What are we supposed to learn? A simple, uh, faithful beast of burden steps in to save its owner's life and reconnect this prophet who is seeing nothing but dollar signs right now, back to God. The donkey had been faithful. Balaam had not. The donkey had eyes to see what God was doing. Balaam clearly did not. The donkey was focused on nothing but serving its master. Balaam was not. He had uh, begun to uh, ponder ways to not serve uh, God, his master. Donkeys Guys are, are simple animals. They're not flashy. They don't stand out in a crowd. They don't have any terrific skill or especially unique qualities. They're just steady, faithful, and, and tireless servants of their masters. So often in Scripture, uh, what we learn from some of these animal stories, God shows us how, how worthless worldly pursuits are by uplifting uh, the, the simple God-fearing individuals, right, often people, first of all, uh, who have pure hearts and, and steady commitment towards God, God uplifts them as examples for us. But uh, once again, in these animal stories, even a donkey, we learn, can set an example for a person, can represent uh, the, the righteous path or the obedient path that God has laid out for us. When a person gets distracted and, and gets pulled into worldly pursuits, even a donkey and in other, other places in different ways, other animals represent kind of the, the obedient, the simple, the the pure uh, path towards uh, obedience and and uh, faithful uh, life lived in, in honor and glory of God. Um, animals can set that example for us. Here it's a donkey of all animals, uh, but God highlights uh, the actions and, and the attitude and, and the um, lifestyle of this donkey and calls us as people, at least this is my, this is my uh, way of connecting the dots, calls us as people to try to duplicate it in our own lives. The simple, faithful obedience and um, just uh, uh, honing in on, on God's call in our lives and seeking to live it out. Uh, so, Stephen, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to you because I have another donkey story, uh, but I want to give you a chance to, to uh, mix things up a bit because we can only talk about donkeys for so long before we get a little loopy. So we'll come back to it. Right, so um, I, I think that's going to be your costume for Halloween, is it not? <laughs> they, they still have Shrek costumes? I might be able to track down one. Uh, yeah, that would be great. Um, but actually, the next animal we're going to talk about was actually also a talking animal in Scripture. Um, we're going to be talking about the snake or the serpent. Um, and snakes are mentioned in Scripture over 80 times. Um, with more than 40 species found in Syria or and Arabia. Um, most of them are non-poisonous. Um, and kind of just a side note, I'm not a huge snake person. I will say that when I was in college, there was a student who was a biology major, and he uh, kept snakes in his dorm room. And, uh, <laughs> and I feel really bad for his roommate. Um, but he would take his snakes out in his dorm room, and I petted a few snakes, and they're... The texture is really kind of smooth and silky-ish. Um, with the proper snake handle, handler there, I wasn't as afraid, but really not a huge snake person. <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't have him as a roommate. Anyways, 
Snakes are mentioned in scripture, like I said, over 80 times. Snakes are mentioned several times for different things. Um, they're mentioned for their wisdom by Jesus um, in Matthew chapter 10. They're mentioned, their sharp tongues are mentioned in Psalms. Um, also, their poisonous properties are often mentioned throughout scripture. Um, but of course, the story most often associated with snakes is um, in the garden with Adam and Eve. Um, and there the snake speaks just, just as a donkey speaks. And, um, and, and Paul, when he's speaking about the donkey, the snake also speaks. Um, so it's interesting how um, these creatures are speaking. It makes me think of how heaven's going to be like. And maybe there really is an Aslan from Narnia. Anyways, <laughs> so um, so yeah, that's that's the picture we get. And of course, snakes, um, they usually do get associated with sin throughout the scriptures. Um, they're mentioned in the prophets and, and again mentioned um, the Pharisees are considered uh, vipers. Um, so there's 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 tends to be association with sin with snakes. But of course, snakes are not inherently evil. Um, no creature is inherently evil, um, but Satan does use, in the garden, Satan did use a snake as a way to tempt Adam and Eve, and then just the symbolism of a snake is used in Scripture, but in no way should we think of snakes or any other creature that we're afraid of, like giant spiders, or none of them are, I don't believe spiders are mentioned in Scripture at all, but uh, maybe they should have been tempted by a spider, that actually would have been more scary. Anyways, um, but no, there's no animal that's inherently evil. Matter of fact, we always go back to the beginning when God says he created all things and he saw, saw that it was all, all that was good, including pesky animals like mosquitoes. So, um, so yeah, when we also, too, what's incredible, um, I love when, when we see animals here. Um, you see it. In Revelation, Satan is mentioned as a snake, but also Jesus is mentioned in the prophecy um, about crushing the head of the serpent, um, a.k.a. Satan was, or Jesus was crushing Satan. So Jesus was prophesied as crushing the head of the serpent. However, the snake is made tame and harmless when all things are made right again. So this is incredible. I, several animals that are that are sev uh, seen as fierce or when things are turned back again, when, when um, God comes back again and there's a new heaven and new earth, we see these animals that once were fierce now become tame and harmless. Um, so just listen to this verse. This verse is one of the most um, incredible verses just because of the contrast that, that it portrays. So Isaiah chapter 11, verses 8 and 9 and the prophet is uh, prophet Isaiah is talking about um, the end of time when Christ comes back um, and there's a new earth. So just imagine this for a second. Isaiah chapter 11, it says, The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest, and they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that just a, a, a very vivid and crazy picture to think of an infant playing next to a cobra's nest or, or a child putting their hand into the viper's nest? That's just like, even right now, I kind of, because I have two young kids and I would <laughs> I would do it myself, but to think of my kids near a viper's nest, that that is like, 
really hard for me to wrap my mind around, um, which is part of the reason why the prophet said it, because there's this new heaven, new earth is something that we can't even completely wrap our mind around. So just, just to think as these deadly creatures, the cobras and vipers, playing next to children, um, it just shows um, the incredible world um, that God is going to bring when Christ comes back. So, um, that's yeah, that's just a mention of serpents, snakes, um, a lot more to dig into, but hopefully this was enough to um, maybe wet, wet, what am I trying to say, wet your taste buds, there you go, <laughs> to, to explore in a little bit more. So if I remember right, the uh, part of the story of the fall afterwards, one of the consequences for the snake was that it was told it was going to crawl on its belly uh, for all eternity, like down on the dust. So I've always wondered um, whether that meant that prior to that time, snakes walked upright. Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, can you call it walking? That's a, yeah, that's a good question. Actually, I did read up on that. And they most commentators and scholars say that snakes probably weren't walking. Um, it's just kind of a metaphor speak that um, when serpents do eat, they get a lot of dust in their mouth and stuff. But they said their typical probably wasn't. Though I will say, if you're up for seeing how a how a snake would look with legs, um, I did see images of that, and it was pretty crazy, uh, pretty scary. So if you want to look up snakes with legs or or a Bible snake with legs or something, look it up in Google. You'll get some crazy images. Right along with the, uh, have you ever heard of the hoop snake, Stephen? The hoop snake. No. That's a, a snake that um, you know, reaches back and bites the end of its tail. Is it, is it a tail? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Is it called a tail when your entire body is a tail? <laughs> bites bites yes. its, its tail end and forms a hoop, and it rolls think, yeah, down the yeah, street. Yeah. 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 I think that's a bit of folklore, actually. But um, there was a time when I believed it to be true. Uh, hoop snakes. Well, uh, enough about snakes. Um, if my mom's listening to this podcast, she's already heard enough and has probably already turned it off. So uh, in case she's still with us, uh, mom, we'll, we'll switch to a different topic. And uh, then the next animal we're going to visit with is an ostrich. This, I'm, I'm told, is, in fact, Stephen's favorite animal. So <laughs> get to hear all about it. Uh, this will probably be the longest span of time you'll ever spend considering ostriches in your entire life, especially in the context of, of our Christian faith. Uh, so yes, ostriches are in the Bible, and, and in particular they play a starring role in the book of Job. If you're familiar uh, with Job, you know kind of the context of the story. Job is, is beset by um, tons of, of really heavy, awful um, occurrences, episodes in his life where he's, he's losing loved ones left and right. Everything is going wrong. And a good portion of the book is, is the conversation that takes place after this between Job and his friends and, and essentially a dialogue uh, back and forth between Job and God in which God basically explains to him the nature of the, the universe and who God is and, and uh, how uh, Job is to begin to maybe understand and, and uh, grapple with the reality of all the suffering that he is facing. But a good portion of the book is, once again, uh, Job learning who God is and uh, much of the illustrations that God uses to describe himself to, to Job uh, come from nature. 
in Job 39 in particular, ostriches get some solid airtime. And, and I'm sorry to say uh, for any ostriches out there today, none of it is very flattering. Ostriches teach us, in fact, a great deal about what not to be, who not to be in life. Interestingly enough, I found out in my research, scientists actually know relatively little about ostriches because of how terrified ostriches are of humans. When they, they spot a human, which they can fairly quickly with their, their great height, right? They, they use their incredible speed. They take off running. So we have a hard time studying them. Our, our best uh, information about ostriches actually comes from a couple of uh, zoologists who created a fake termite mound to hide underneath, and uh, only then were able to observe ostriches from up close. The qualities that we learn about ostriches from Job seem to be pretty accurate, seem to, to gel well with what scientists have discovered. So I'm going to read uh, quickly this passage from Job that refers to ostriches. The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, but they cannot compare with the pinions and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labor was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. So the, the overall message here, uh, comical in, in many ways, is, is that ostriches are maybe impressive to look at. Their, their speed is impressive, but uh, looks can be deceiving. In other words, don't judge a person by uh, their outward appearance is a quick lesson that we can learn here from this passage about ostriches, uh, that actions ultimately speak louder than words. They run 43 miles per hour. They run 43 miles an hour, Stephen reports uh, <laughs> from a, a, a very quick Google search. So that is impressive. Uh, that is impressive. They look impressive, but once again, actions speak louder than words. Looks are not uh, all that matter. Uh, first of all, one thing that the passage points out that scientists uh, concur with, ostriches have, uh, are, are pretty lousy parents. They have a bad habit of accidentally stepping on and crushing their own eggs beneath their powerful feet and, and destroying uh, the lives of their children before they're even born. More ostrich babies are in fact killed this way than by outside threats. That doesn't mean that outside dangers don't factor in, though, because ostriches also have a tendency to wander off and, and forget that they're supposed to be protecting their eggs and then allowing predators to sneak in and steal them. And their neglect as parents doesn't even end there. Uh, another thing that scientists have observed is that when they're out hunting for food with their now born babies, with their, their young uh, along with them, sometimes they come across uh, a leopard or a hyena, uh, a predator of some sort who poses a threat to them, and they've been known to push their babies out in front of them uh, before they take off running, leaving their children basically to, uh, to, to die in their place uh, in order to rescue themselves, to save themselves. All of these, in, in case it's not already clear, are qualities humans should strive not to duplicate, right? Rather, uh, we should strive to uh, care for and protect the weak and the vulnerable around us. We should be willing to make sacrifices for the betterment of others. 
An interesting note here uh, to, to wrap up our, our thoughts about ostriches and go in one last direction. Uh, in some ways, this passage, the very end of this passage, redeems the ostrich. Uh, is he in this passage? God concludes by declaring that he did not endow ostriches with any wisdom, nor did he give her a share of good sense. In in other words, ostriches are pretty dense. They're not especially intelligent beings. So are we accountable to protect and care for others, to to put others before our own safety and our well-being? Yes, we most definitely are, especially our own children, right? However, there's also a sense that God will demonstrate patience with those who were not granted some of the privileges and and abilities that others have been granted. This aligns, uh, I think, well with Jesus' words from Luke 12 when he uh, declares from those whom much has been given, much will be expected. And uh, if we believe the inverse also to be true from from those uh, who not much has been given, maybe not as much will be expected, including the ostrich. So so in some ways, we can kind of let ostriches off the hook because God didn't grant them the wisdom to be able to make good decisions, even for their their young. Um, And what do we learn from this? Well, first of all, we we covered uh, don't judge a book by its cover, right? Uh, It's more than uh, appearance. Uh, That's kind of a basic one we've revisited often. But secondly, uh, ostriches are are a reminder of God's grace to us as well, that um, those who maybe have a difficult plight in life or maybe weren't born with um, the, the same gifts and abilities that others were uh, will be treated with with grace and acceptance and and still loved and cared for and, and nurtured by God um, that they don't uh, they don't get mistreated or uh, judged according to their gifts and abilities um, so uh, just another piece we can pull from our lesson about ostriches from the book of job and uh, if if we have time we may come back to my other donkey story. Uh, if not, I'm I'm content uh, with what with what we've covered. Stephen's got at least one more here for us, so let's uh, see where he's going to take us. Yeah, so um, I guess if you don't get your donkey story, we'll have to maybe do a special podcast of just Paul and his donkey stories. <laughs> so, <laughs> that would be a great listen. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the next animal we're, we're going to talk about is lions, um, and lions are actually the one animal that's mentioned more than uh, donkeys, Paul's f- favorite biblical animal for sure. Um, lions are mentioned over 135 times, um, and generally lions in scripture and in ancient times represented strength. Um, the lion is described as a powerful, powerful and daring in Proverbs 30, uh, verse 30, um, distinguished as a terrifying roar in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 29, um, and also 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, um, describes Satan as a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. Um, so these are kind of just small references. I mean, they're, again, they're mentioned 135 times, over 135 times. However, probably the most memorable mention one of the most memorable mention um, of lions in the Bible is that the lions are a sign of the tribe of Judah. Um, so Jesus is, Jesus is described as a lion from the tribe of Judah in Revelations chapter 5, verse 5. Um, now I'm going to be quoting from, uh, from some research that I did. It says that um, based on Jacob's blessing, the lion is a symbol of the tribe of Judah. 
which is known as the kingly tribe. King David was from the tribe of Judah. Lions symbolize power, fierceness, and majesty. Lions are the king of the beast, and the, and the lion of the tribe of Judah is the king of everything. Um, so lions also make not only the appearance in association with Jesus in Revelations, um, but lions also make appearance on the cherubim, which this is a kind of cre- uh, crazy thing to think about. The cherubim actually have four faces. <laughs> There's a cherubim face, a human face, a lion face, and an eagle face. Um, so a lion appears there. And again, does a cherubim really have a face like that? Or is this symbolism? We'll do maybe do a podcast on Revelation someday. <laughs> uh, a very, very, can be a very difficult book to understand. But um, again, they're mentioned in association with the cherubim. Another familiar lion story that we all know is Daniel and the lion's den. Um, back in ancient times, lions were even were used as pets. In some cases, they're still used as pets today. Um, hence, Tiger King, right? Tiger King, yeah. Yeah. Did I mean, uh, Mike Tyson have uh, yeah, Mike, tigers? I can't remember. Yeah, lions, tigers, bears. Oh my. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so lions, I still use as pets today, though, but I wouldn't recommend it. But back then, lions were definitely used as pets. Pharaohs would have lions, but untamed lions were put into pits, and this is most likely where Daniel was thrown into. Yet God showed his power over this powerful beast by shutting the mouth, the mouth of hungry and untamed lions. And then finally, again, we get a picture when all things are restored to peace. Um, again, just like when we see the viper um, being playing with the child, we get another picture of animals, fierce animals. Same chapter, actually, Isaiah chapter 11. Um, maybe it's just a hint to read Isaiah chapter 11. Um, but Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, it says, um, The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the youngling together, and a little child will lead them. Um, what a time that would be, huh? When a little child is leading the lion and the leopard and the wolf while with a viper wrapped around. No, with a viper as a scarf or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, just picture this, all these very tamed, deadly creatures playing with an innocent child is just Quite an amazing, amazing picture. You're not volunteering one of your <laughs> No, <laughs> no. no. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is just a, gives an amazing picture of you see these creatures being made tame. And really what, the, what this image in this picture is showing is um, God's future world, um, this glorious world um, where there's no fear fear of death, fear of these vicious animals, and that even the innocence of a child can play next to these very deadly animals. So it's just a great, amazing picture that just gives glory and praise um, to God. So um, I want to reference, so just kind of like, I was just going to do two animals, but then I thought, hey, how about about we do a a third one just for fun? Um, And we're going to talk about sheep real quickly. And I know sheep are mentioned, uh, have a prominent role in scripture. Um, they're mentioned a lot, um, and there are actually 11 different species of sheep um, <laughs> around that area. So first, sheep um, were a primary source of income for people in, ancient, uh, in the ancient Middle East. 
Um, so almost like if you had a lot of sheep, you had a lot of money, essentially, or a lot if you had a lot of, um, there's another animal I'll mention. If you had a lot of camels as well, there's, there's certain animals that if you had a lot of it mentioned um, wealth. Um, but the predominant uh, picture of um, sheep is God compares his people to sheep. And, and shepherds. Um, shepherds are also mentioned a lot in Scripture, and some of the three, some of the most important people in all of Scripture were shepherds. Abraham, David, and Moses uh, were all shepherds. Um, and shepherding was a common job, though it was one of the lowliest occupations. So you got to think of being a shepherd was um, you're constantly with the animals 24-7. It was a lonely and difficult job. Um, a dirty job. It, it was a job that um, was re- really um, wealthy landowner. Land, wealthy landowners would hire out this job to tending sheep to boys or men, or unqualified men for um, men who weren't qualified to do dignified jobs, quote unquote. Um, so this was a lowly job. Just to just to give you a picture of that, David's father didn't even consider David when he was. Um, he was so insignificant that he didn't even consider him as a candidate to be king when the prophet Samuel went out looking for the next king. Um, his father didn't even mention him as one of his sons, <laughs> uh, which is always interesting. Um, so being a shepherd was not considered a glorious job by any means. Um, so it's always interesting when Jesus considers himself as the great shepherd, um, it being a job of a lowly position. Um, but then going back to what we said, sheep... Um, uh, are mentioned as like as people um, that sometimes we are, are, are mentioned as, as sheep and Jesus is the great shepherd um, and that he shepherds us and, and this is interesting too because sheep aren't this cuddly animal that we might imagine sheep are really dirty and they don't they listen to a certain extent but they tend to wander they, they just go to they're not very smart animals, um, so to think as that the Bible considers us as sheep is just an interesting thing. Um, so, kind of like three aspects of that: first, sheep are notorious and for following a leader. Um, the sheep need a shepherd; they need to follow someone. They 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 need the shepherd for survival. Um, second, sheep need protection. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a sheep before, but they're not very scary animals. They there's really no way for them to protect themselves other than having a shepherd to protect them. Um, they, ha- they don't have sharp teeth, sharp claws. They don't have anything. They're just kind of these slow-walking cotton balls. Um, <laughs> so uh, just I can just imagine predators are just licking their lips when they see sheep. So um, they need protection. And then third, sheep, like humans, are pr- prone to wander. Um, sheep get distracted. They get lost. And sometimes they... Sometimes they get bold and just leave the flock altogether, um, and it's the job of the shepherd to go out and find the sheep and to bring it back um, to the flock. Um, and it's just interesting how the Bible compares us to sheep, um, that we are we need the protection of the Lord, we need a leader, we need to be following someone, um, and that we also, um, that we need, um, again, the, the leadership and the direction um, of Jesus to bring us back even when we wander. Um, and what's what's really interesting too, as I didn't mention, is that sheep were also an important sacrificial animal. Um, one of the animals that 
many scholars believe was one of the first animals to be sacrificed in Genesis 4.4. Um, and this all comes together when Jesus is considered both the lamb, the sacrificial lamb, and the shepherd. Um, it's just amazing that Jesus covers um, the full spectrum as being our sacrificial lamb dying on the cross for our sins while also being our shepherd and guiding and leading us. Um, so this is just kind of the sheep um, plays a really predominant role in Scripture, giving this real complete and full picture of Jesus. So I think this gives us enough time to hear Paul's donkey story. Um, I'm really, I'm really uh, excited to hear about this. And as Paul's going to wrap us up with this story, um, take it away. So back to donkeys. We're, we're bookending. <laughs> Bookending our, our time with donkeys uh, was not our intention, but I, I know at home you all are thrilled by this opportunity. Uh, so the, the second passage that uh, that we did a little preparation for uh, around donkeys is probably one that uh, may be a little bit more familiar to you, uh, being a New Testament passage and uh, closely tied to Jesus and his uh, last days on earth. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, uh, the Sunday prior to his crucifixion, you may remember, uh, if you've encountered the story before, that he was riding a, a donkey. So what's the context? Once again, let's set the stage here. Jesus is at the height of his popularity with the people of Israel. Uh, word of his miracles has gotten around, the boldness with which he, he speaks uh, and, and even, in some cases, stands up to the religious leaders. The people are uh, beginning to be abuzz about Jesus. They're expecting Jesus now, uh, in this moment, to, to step into a role as a revolutionary, maybe a, a military general, leading the Israelites, uh, perhaps. At least this is where their, their imaginations are taking them to victory over their oppressors, the, the Romans, under whose rule they live. And here is Jesus making his grand entry in this incredible moment. Uh, all of the, the uh, teachings and, and miracles and healings have uh, you know, been, been spread around. The word of all of them has been spread around to all the people. The excitement is, is, uh, is ramping up. Jesus is entering the city in the middle of uh, the feast of the Passover, or at least when people are coming, getting ready to prepare for the Passover. Uh, the city's busting at the seams with all these people from all around who are coming to celebrate this feast. And Jesus, uh, with all these expectations people are placing on him, rides uh, into the city on this incredible, majestic, and gallant uh, donkey. donkey. <laughs> now, it wasn't unheard of for great leaders to ride donkeys in the ancient Middle East. This I, I discovered in, in some of my research, and I was somewhat surprised by this, but... Uh, not military leaders and, and not in front of grand audiences when they're looking to make an incredible impression. Jesus, once again, chose. In fact, the, the story goes that he sent his disciples out to uh, pick a particular donkey, um, and he went out of his way to make sure that it was a donkey. And this donkey that he rode into the city, he went out of his way to choose this simple, reliable, once again, beast of burden to be his mount, his great steed, as he entered the city of Jerusalem. So whether the people understood the message or not that Jesus was trying to communicate, this was the equivalent of Jesus shouting loud and clear to these huge audiences, I have not come 
to be what you all expect me to be. I have not come to be served as some great king or, or leader, uh, but to serve, to serve others. I have not come to take lives in some great campaign, military campaign, but rather to give my own life as a sacrifice for all. I am not of the kingdom that you think I am. I'm not here to do what you think I'm about to do. And the events of the next several days would, would prove this. So the reputation and qualities of an animal, once again, uh, are used to teach us something here about God and something about ourselves. The donkey uh, that day was more representative of Jesus's character, Jesus's mission in the world than a white stallion would have been. So uh, this, I, I think, um, and without going in deeper, this is the primary reason that Jesus is riding a donkey here and what we're supposed to pull from it. God speaks to us in countless different ways to try to reach each and every one of us. So uh, some people in the audience that day may have heard Jesus's words. Uh, some people maybe uh, heard, had heard his teachings before that. Some maybe later on that week would witness him on the cross and that would mean something to them. It would sink in uh, for that reason. Others. Uh, maybe would learn the most about Jesus and, and uh, the, the gospel message would become the most clear by witnessing the fact that Jesus rode into the city on a donkey uh, of all creatures. And uh, even for us here today, as we look back on, on uh, this story, as we have access to the Holy Scriptures and, and can read all the different ways that God communicates with us and ways that he seeks to share his message and his wisdom with us, for some, it, it might be Jesus on the cross. For others, it might be his words that he speaks uh, this day or, or later on that week in his teachings or leading up to his crucifixion. Uh, for others, it might be his healings. Um, all of these different ways God speaks to us, why not add a donkey and the symbolism uh, that comes with that to the many ways that God shares his wisdom and his plan for humanity and the nature of his son, uh, our Savior, as a servant in our midst. So enough about donkeys, not just for today, but maybe like for at least a couple years. I've thought enough and talked enough about donkeys for a lifetime, maybe. Uh, and you're probably done with them, too. So uh, it's been fun digging into uh, animals. Just incredible how, how God uses his creation uh, to speak to us, to enlighten us about his character. Um, and I often wonder when he was creating, uh, did he have these things in mind? Did he know how he was going to use the donkey uh, to symbolize different things, the lion, the lamb, you know, the snake. Did he know all of these things as he created them? Just a, a beautiful um, thought about our God as he created us and all of these creatures that teach us so many different things. So uh, enough for today. We, uh, we are going to sign off here, come back to you next week. Thanks for listening in. Uh, we hope, uh, as always, for other opportunities to connect with you, uh, whether in person at our um, now 830 uh, parking lot service, continuing 10 o'clock in person and in the sanctuary, and now uh, the new opportunity to worship alongside others by watching the live stream of the Harbor Service uh, in a different space here at the church at 11.30 on Sunday mornings as well. So uh, we hope to see you in one of those spaces and places. Uh, if not, we hope to connect with you in other ways as we continue to try to continue to be a church community even in the midst of these strange times. Thanks all for listening in and have a splendid week.